Genesis chapter 14. We're going to go from verse 17 to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God for us. After his return from the defeat of Ketoleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand this. We read it and it seems foreign and strange. And yet you have something here for us that points us to Christ, that glorifies Christ. So help us to understand your word. Help me to preach in a way that is understandable. In Christ's name, amen. Well, there is an old legend. Maybe it's true. I don't know. Some say it is. Um, Some say it's just a coincidence. But it goes something like this. And and maybe I'm being cliche here because of this illustration, but it's okay. Uh, It it has to do with railroads, right? So you have the the standard width or gauge of a railroad is, is four feet, eight and a half inches. And that's pretty well standard in the U.S. It's standard in Western Europe and in East Africa. Four feet, eight and a half inches from one rail to the other. And the origins of that width, which seem like a kind of random number, are traced back to the earliest railways up in the corn, uh, the coal fields of northern England. And the reason they chose that width, four feet, eight and a half inches, as the width between the wheels of those first steam trains was because the grooves were already worn into the roads. And they were that width, just shy of five feet. And the reason those grooves had been worn into the roads was because the horse-drawn carts that traveled on those roads were roughly four feet, eight and a half inches wide. And the reason those grooves had worn that way goes all the way back to the Roman occupation of England in AD 43. So it's one of those measurements, eight feet, four and a half inches, or four feet rather, eight and a half inches, big trains. It's just one of those measurements that had to standardize and then stay the same. You can't have different sized trains on the same railroad. So it stayed the same for thousands of years. Silly trivia, isn't it? But, but it gives you a sense of how ancient some things are and how things change and how things stay the same. And we're going to go see a little bit of that principle, that deep history of some traditions and how they change today. Last week, we examined the nature of Abram's rescue of the captives And we saw there in in that passage how that that blessing that we just read from Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, that that it was the Lord who had helped Abram in that victory. 
And in response to the blessing, in, in today's text, what we're seeing today, Abram does something we have not yet seen in the book of Genesis. Remember, Genesis is a book of firsts. A lot of things happen for the first time in Genesis that happen again and again for the rest of the Bible. But this is the first time in Genesis that we see a tithe. And in verse 20, look at verse 20 with me, the second part of verse 20. We find that Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of all that he brought back from defeating the kings of the east in that battle. Uh, What is going on here with this tenth? What's happening here with the tithe? that Abram gives to Melchizedek. So, so we're just going to answer two simple questions today. What does it mean that Abram tithed? What does it mean in Abram's context? And what does this have to do with us? Two questions. What does this mean for Abram? What does this mean for us? So to answer the first question of what this means in Abram's context, we need to understand kind of the political world of, uh, of Abram's day. Oftentimes, uh, in the ancient Near East, greater, more powerful kings, these are called suzerains, would make sworn agreements with lesser kings who were called vassals. And these agreements were like treaties. The more powerful king, the suzerain, says something like, I will provide protection for you. I will provide land for you. I will provide opportunity for you. You will be a vassal to me. You will owe me a tax attacks and you will always be loyal to me and only me the relationship was exclusive so a vassal could only have one suzerain the lord king and the suzerain was to be held in honor by his vassal in return the vassal receives the benefits of being allied to a greater power so from an ancient near east politics point of view what's happening here when we see that abram gives a tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek, it would appear that he's entering into one of these types of honor and protection treaties with Melchizedek as his king. He's recognizing that that Melchizedek is a greater king than himself, and he's going to honor Melchizedek in this way. That's what it looks like is happening. And we know that something like that is going on here because of what happens next with the other great ruler. Remember, there's two rulers there with Abram. The other great ruler who happens to be there this would be the king of Sodom. So, so after seeing, the, the, Moses first introduces to us king of Sodom, and then you have the bread and the wine. And after seeing the, the, the meal of bread and wine and the blessing given to Abram, and Abram's tithe to Melchizedek, the king of Sodom, whose name means son of evil, remember, he steps up to have his turn with Abram. Look at what he says in verse 21. Verse 21. Give me the person's you take the goods for yourself. Now, to us, we look at that and go, "What? He's just, he's just demanding persons, giving Abram the goods. But then we don't really understand what's happening here because of Abram's response. But what the king of Sodom is doing here is making a claim to be the greater suzerain-like authority. He's saying, I am the more powerful ruler of these here parts. And all that stuff that you just plundered from the eastern kings, all of that rightfully belongs to me. I'm, the, I'm the, the Lord King in these areas. And then when he makes this, give me the persons, but you take the goods statement, this is, this is an offer. He's actually offering Abram the opportunity to enter into one of these vassal treaties. 
The, the unwritten understanding of such an agreement, should Abram choose to enter into this agreement, is that Abram, if he kept those riches that he got from the spoils of war, he would be beholden to King Bera. Remember? Because, because Bera has given him all of these riches, or given him, in Bera's mind, all these riches. And as a result of keeping that gift, Abram would be vassal to the king of Sodom. Were he to do this, Abram would have to hold the king of Sodom, whose name means son of evil. Abram would have to honor him and hold him in high regard, and he would owe a continual tax to him. Meanwhile, King Bera would get the credit, all of the credit, for Abram's prosperity. So there's a lot going on here, isn't there? There's a lot of cultural information packed into that little give me the person's and keep the goods offer. Well, in response, in verse 22, Abram says, no. Look what he says. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That means he's sworn an oath. That's what lifting the hand is. I've sworn an oath to the Lord. It's very much like in court when you raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth. Abram is saying, I have raised my right hand to the Lord. I've made an oath to the Lord, the greater king, who possesses not just Sodom, not just Canaan, but the entire earth. And on top of that, all of the heavens. He's king over the earth, and he's king over all spiritual beings. That's, that's what's embedded into Abram's statement now. Now, now when, when did Abram swear this oath to serve the Lord? It wasn't, it wasn't in last week's text. It wasn't going back to chapter 12. You're not going to, you're not going to see anything where he raises his right hand and swears an oath to the Lord. What is Abram talking about here when he says, I've already committed myself to the Lord? Well, he's actually talking here about the tithe that he just gave to Melchizedek. By giving a tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek, the priest of the Lord, Abram has lifted his hand. He has sworn an oath to be vassal to the greater king. He's entered into one of these honor and blessing treaties already. The Lord is Abram's suzerain. So hold on to that, because Abram goes on. Look at verse 23. In that raising of my hand to give my allegiance to the Lord, I swore, what he says, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Now, remember the exclusive nature of these treaties. Once Abram entered this agreement with Most High King, he could not also enter into another agreement with another king, which is why he says, I won't take anything from you, son of evil, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Again, Abram wants everyone there to know that it is the Lord Most High and no one else who is the source of all of his earthly blessings. He goes on, I'll take nothing except what the young men have eaten. So presumably as they're coming back down from battle, the soldiers are eating as they're on the way back to uh, Salem there. And then he says, let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. And these are, these are Abram's three buddies that he stays with. Because Abram is just, and because he wants to maintain his relationship with those who served him, and because he doesn't trust the king of Sodom, 
Abram, at the negotiating table here, ensures that the soldiers, his soldiers and his allies have their share, and then he leaves everything else. He won't even take a scrap of leather. He won't even take a thread from King Bera. So what we're seeing here is that Abram, at the negotiating table, is being offered untold riches. We're not told how much they brought back from those eastern kings, but it's a lot, apparently. But Abram knows that his allegiance is to the Lord, and that is more important to him. He has sworn an oath to the Lord through his tithe. So rather than taking what the king of Sodom is offering Abram here, Abram maintains his service to the Lord, knowing full well that he must forfeit everything. He has to leave everything there with the king of Sodom. He must leave it all with the son of evil. This is a very bold rejection to the king of Sodom. And, and recognize this rejection that Abram has just made is not without risk. The king of Sodom is not going to be pleased that he just got rebuffed in front of everyone by this upstart shepherd. Which is why at the beginning of chapter 15, look at 15 verse 1. This, this makes a little more sense now given what Abram has just done. So immediately following this episode, perhaps the very evening after Abram has rejected Bera, the Lord tells Abram in 15 verse 1, Don't be afraid. I'll be your shield. Don't be afraid. I'll be your shield. He's saying to Abram, don't fear the repercussions that will come about from your rejection of this earthly king. I will be your protector. The Lord is affirming. He is the Lord protector, the suzerain king over Abram, his servant, his vassal. Abram has boldly rejected the kings of the world in favor of service to the Lord even with the risks that that entails. But despite the risk, Abram's done this because he knows not only would be politically uncouth, but he knows that spiritually he cannot serve two masters. As Jesus teaches, either he will leave, love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve the king of Sodom and the Lord. It's fairly obvious to you and me as we read this, once we understand the, the, the political background of what's happening here, it's obvious to, uh, to us that Abram or any sensible person should reject the king of Sodom. Right, we know the story. We know where this goes. We know what's about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we know that it's not a good idea to be in cahoots with the king of Sodom. But it's not as obvious to us that when we choose worldly wealth as our king, our master is also the son of evil, the God of this world. We enlightened modernists have a tendency to think of things this way. We think of earthly wealth, think of like what, what Abram's being offered here. We think of earthly wealth as purely physical. It's stuff, and therefore it is spiritually neutral. And so we compartmentalize our spiritual life to church and prayer and the Bible, while everything else that is physical is unrelated to the spiritual. That's how we think. And with this way of thinking, we, 
we, we can pursue, at least we believe, that we can pursue earthly security with our bodies and simultaneously eternal security with our souls. But what Jesus teaches, what Abram is showing us, is that there is a deeper reality here, a reality that goes all the way back here to, to Abram. When we choose to put our securities, our trust, our ultimate hopes in the things of the world and the kings of this world and the powers of this world, we are not making a spiritually neutral decision. Rather, according to the scriptures, everything is spiritually loaded. Everything has eternal significance. So we actually cannot compartmentalize our lives and say, oh, this is something that God cares about, and this is something that he doesn't care about, and that I care about. Everything, everything in your life is spiritually significant. Everything, what you do with your time, what you do with your money, what you do with your relationships, the decisions you make at work, all of it. Which is why Abram says, I can't even take a thread from you. Even a little thread to, to, to patch his jacket or a, a little piece of, of leather to fix his, his falling apart sandal. Even that, were he to take that from King Bera, even that would have spiritual significance. Abram cannot serve both the Lord and the kings of the earth. Neither can you. Neither can I. And you might think, okay, Dustin, hold on a minute. Abram gave his tithe to a king, right? Melchizedek. And isn't Melchizedek an earthly king? So hasn't Abram entered into one of these treaties with an earthly king, the king of Salem? Actually, no. Even though Melchizedek is king of a place on earth called Salem, which is Jerusalem, Mount Zion, verse 18 says he's also Look at that parentheses in verse 18. He's also priest of God Most High, the Lord. So when Abram gave his tithe to Melchizedek, the priest, he was, as he says, giving it to the Lord. He was raising his hand to the Lord. The royal priest named Melchizedek is the one who intercedes between the Lord and man in Abram's day. That's what priests do. They go before the Lord to make atonement for sins, and they represent the Lord to the people. This becomes more explicit as, as the scriptures unfold, as the, as the Bible story unfolds, as Israel's story continues. You get to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and there's a lot written about what priests do. A lot. They make sacrifices for sin. They intercede for the people. They maintain the tabernacle and later the temple. They commune with the Lord. And relevant to our text, priests also receive tithes. The priests of Israel received the tenth, the tithe from the people of Israel. And then the priests in turn would tithe from what they'd been given. They'd give a tenth of that to the high priest Aaron or whatever the high priest was, whoever the high priest was in that day. Now the function of that tithe changes some over the course of Israel's history. So from Abram all the way to, say, the book of Numbers, and Numbers describing, Numbers describes when Israel has gone into the promised land, and the priests, everyone is, every tribe is given land except for the priests, the Levites. They don't get any land. The, the, the Lord is their inheritance, and so they are supported by the other 11 tribes. That's what the tithe functioned as 
when they go into the promised land. But it wasn't purely just a matter of efficiency. Israel understood, just as Abram does here, Israel understood that they were giving to the Lord when they gave to the priests. And the priests understood they were giving to the Lord when they gave to the high priest. And what's interesting is all of that begins not in the book of Numbers, not with the law passed down to to Moses on Mount Sinai. It all begins right here in Genesis 14 with this example of Abram who is not abiding by the law of God. He's, He's abiding by political principles and traditions of the pagan nations around him. This will actually come up again with Jacob later on in Genesis. Abram's grandson, Jacob, commits to give a tenth of what he has to the Lord because the Lord tells Jacob he will be Jacob's protector and provider. A tenth was what was traditionally in the ancient Near East owed to a suzerain lord or a lord protector. So that's what Jacob commits to, just as that's what Abram has committed to. So the precedent that is set with Abram that becomes law for the Israelites under Moses is that the Lord is king over all. The tithe, we're asking what is this tithe that Abram's given? The tithe represents service to the Lord. For the people of Israel, honor and homage belong to the Lord. And the tithe is a pledge of that allegiance. Abram's tithe in our text shows us that his hope is in the Lord. And the Lord's promises, rather than the things and the kings of this world. So the question is for us. All right. Does a tithe mean the same thing today? Is a a 10% offering to the church how we as Christians today are meant to show that the Lord is our king, just as Abram showed that the Lord was his king when he gave to the priests? Or as Israel showed that the Lord was their king when they gave to their priests. Is that how we show our allegiance to God today? And what better time of year to ask this question, right? It's the first of the year. Lots of churches kick off their year with a giving campaign campaign to, to get in good financial position for the year. We've got a new budget. And it would be strategic for me to say, yes, if Jesus is your king then you must give 10% of your gross earnings or else you are not truly loyal to Jesus. So let's all make New Year's resolutions resolutions to tithe, and that would be, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) No, I'm not going to do that. It would be strategic, absolutely. It would be manipulative, yeah, probably. And would it be biblically sound? I don't think it is. We show, as Christians, we show that we belong to Jesus, that we're loyal to Jesus as our king, not through tithing, but through living out the transformation that he has created us in us, through dying for us and causing us to be born again by the Spirit. Or to put it another way, we show our loyalty to Jesus, our allegiance to Jesus, the same way that Jesus showed his allegiance to the Father. How was that? Through death. When Jesus Christ, our high priest, made his offering before God, he did not give 10%. He gave his entire life 
And when Christ gave his life, not only did he make atonement for you and for your sins once for all as the great high priest, but as your redeemer, he purchased you entirely. So then listen, identifying with Christ, listen, identifying with Christ is not a matter of a 10% honor gift. Showing our allegiance to Christ is not a, a matter of a, of a financial gift. Rather, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we are crucified with Christ, we die, we're buried with him in baptism, and then as Christ has been raised up, so are we raised with Christ. So, so how then do we show allegiance? Remember, Abram was showing allegiance to the Lord through this Political offering. How do we do that? How do we show allegiance to the Lord as king today? First of all, repent of the evil of making yourself king and using the people and the wealth of this world as objects to serve your kingship. First of all, repent. Then identify with Christ's death on the cross for you and die with him. Be baptized. Baptism into Christ's death and resurrection, into the new life, is how we show that Christ is our king and that we belong to his kingdom. Baptism is similar to Abram's tithe. It's not, it's not a one-for-one -one correspondence. It's similar. Listen, it's similar to Abram's tithe to Melchizedek. Here's how it's similar. Baptism is our raising our right hand to the Lord and swearing allegiance to him as king. And it is likewise, when we are baptized, it is likewise a rebuke of the devil and his domain in a way similar to Abram's repudiation of the king of Sodom. Do you see the parallel there? So through being baptized into Christ's death, we are raised up into the new creation life. We who are in union with him through faith then live that born-again life, that new creation life, as an ongoing testimony that we serve Christ as our king. The question is, okay, well, what does that look like? I get baptism. We've seen that. But what does the, the rest of this new creation life look like? Well, it looks like Jesus' life. It's a cross-shaped, grace-motivated, spirit-empowered life. The spirit of God is poured into us because of Christ's high priestly atoning work. If you want to know more about that, go back and listen to the sermon on the ascension when we went through the Apostles' Creed. But we learned there that the Spirit of God is poured onto us, into us, because of Christ's high priestly atoning work, and the Spirit empowers us to live these new lives in Christ. And we find this way of living described all over the New Testament. So you have the Gospels that, that prove to us that Jesus is the Christ, and the rest of the New Testament says, okay, now what? This is the now what? This, this, this new way of living, all these very descriptions of what this life looks like in every New Testament epistle. So for instance, we're going to look at Romans 12 for our description. Paul begins by saying, look at Romans 12 with me. He's, he begins by saying, we offer our lives as living sacrifices. Remember, the new life begins with death, not a tithe, but death. That's where the Christian life always begins, Christ's death and then our death. Again, it's not 10% of our stuff that, 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 that we're offering to follow Christ. 
Rather, we are giving our entire lives, 100% of our entire lives, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Look at Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's our offering. Abram didn't have to do that. We do. And where do we put our bodies? Right, so where, where, where do we lay down this 100% offering? Well, in the Old Covenant, the tithe went to the priests for their service in the temple. In the New Covenant, it's different. In the New Covenant, covenant under Christ, because of what Christ has done, Jesus is our great high priest. He's our temple. We're all priests. We're all stones in his temple. Which is why Paul immediately goes from offer your bodies as living sacrifices to how we relate to one another. Because when the old covenant you present your sacrifice to the priest, you're tied to the priest, now you're presenting it to the priest, one another. That the one another's of the New Testament are the priesthood. So he goes on, Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So Abram gave his tithe to Melchizedek the priest. By the Spirit, we enjoin ourselves to Christ through baptism into his death, and then what do we do? then we offer our bodies to his service. And we do that by committing ourselves to the priests, the church. It is impossible to live the new creation life in Christ without belonging to the body of Christ. You can't serve Christ's body if you are estranging yourself from the members of the body. Different churches have different ways of showing this commitment to one another. At Del Cero, we just use the same language that, that Paul uses here in Romans 12. We call our commitment, commitment to one another membership. All right, and then Paul goes on to talk about how, what we've been given, what we are to do with it. So look at verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. These are our contributions to the church. We've given our bodies, and now we're giving our contributions, what the Lord has given us. So, so thinking of the Old Testament parallel, in the Old Testament, the grain farmer brought 10% of his barley. To the priests. The shepherd brought the firstborn and then 10% of his sheep. The goat herder brought the firstborn and then 10% of his goats. The olive grower brought 10% of his oil. The vintner brought 10% of his wine. All of these people brought the gifts as the Lord supplied them. 10%, 10%, 10%, 10%. In that, that proportion of what God had supplied. In the new covenant economy, which is different than the old covenant economy, in the new covenant economy, the gifts that the Lord provides for us to give to the temple are all of these 
spiritual gifts. These are the things that he gives us to build up the church with. So we give these gifts that we've been given back to the body of Christ or the temple, the church, or the building up of the church. We consider others as more significant than ourselves, and we serve the church accordingly. This is new, this is new creation life. New, new covenant life. Then he talks about how we're to treat one another. So he, he goes on uh, in, in Romans 12. How do we, what, what are our mouths, what are our hands, how do we treat one another? This is the life of sacrifice, dying to ourselves, genuinely worshiping the Lord, showing our faithfulness, our loyalty to the king. This is what that looks like in Romans 12, verse 9. Let love, this is our love towards one another, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's interesting, isn't it? That we show that Abram-like honor. Abram was honoring Melchizedek. We show that Abram-like honor and fealty to the Lord by showing honor to who? To one another. Outdoing one another and showing honor. Jesus taught this repeatedly, didn't he? If you love me, love your brother. Why was he saying that? Because this is our life in Christ. Verse 11, he goes on, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. So how, how do we show that Jesus is our king? How do we show that we are, 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 are we're loyalty to him above all other kings? And that we serve him? Well, we're zealous for him. It means we're bold in our faith. We wear our faith on our sleeve. We're not afraid to talk positively and publicly about our king. And that fervency in spirit refers to our demeanor, our, our joy when we speak of Jesus. We live joyfully, we live hopefully, anticipating his return because who wouldn't want their king to return, right? We're anticipating his return. We're patient in trials because we know that he's our hope. This world is not. So when we're enduring it, an earthly trial, we know that this has been ordained by him somehow. And we trust him and we look forward to his return. And so knowing that he is our king, what do we do? We're constant in prayer. We talk to him. The new creation life involves all of your life. All of it. And you've seen that so far, but you won't be surprised then to find that this also relates to how we spend our money. Look at verse 13. This is where we see what the Spirit does in us regarding our money. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's it. We contribute to the needs of the saints. We open our homes to others. Our money belongs to the Lord. Our homes, the food on our tables, it all belongs to the Lord. So we use those things to glorify the Lord in our service to one another. So, so with the time that we have left, I know you're like, well, you still haven't answered the question about 
whether or not I should give 10%. <laughs> with the time that we have left, that's what we're going to do. We're gonna, we're gonna, we've been on this subject of tithing with Abram, but I wanted you to see, most importantly, that the way that we show our allegiance to God is not the same way that Abram did. He did it through the tithe. We did it through this. We do it through this whole life sacrifice. But that does include money stuff. So I want to answer that burning question of how much exactly are we to contribute? How generous are we supposed to be? The New Testament doesn't say the end. That's, that's not. In the book of Acts, so we'll start with the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, in the first publicly recorded New Covenant offering, so we have the, the end of the age of the old temple and the beginning of the age of the new temple, and somebody brings an offering. What does it look like? Well, it's a man named Barnabas who sold a field, and he gave the proceeds to the church to distribute to Christians in need. And sometimes we think he must have sold everything he had. No, the Bible doesn't say that. But what percentage Let's ask this question. What percentage of Barnabas' overall wealth was in that field? The Bible doesn't say. Luke doesn't tell us. Maybe it was all he had. Maybe he had several fields, and this was one of them. Luke doesn't tell us. Because the point is not the percentage of Barnabas' wealth, but the transformation that had taken place in his heart. Barnabas' love for Christ, his allegiance to Christ was displayed first in his repentance and faith, then in his baptism, then in his commitment to other Christians. In his generosity towards his brothers and sisters in Christ. And that generosity is what is being commended in Acts chapter 4 with the first new covenant offering. It was generous. How much was it? Generous. The tithe in the Old Testament law gave us a number. It, was a, it, was a, it, was, it presented a number with which we could be satisfied that we met an obligation. We did it. I got the number. I met the obligation. I checked the box. But the new covenant under Christ is not that way. Because in Christ, it is the Spirit in us gradually creating us in Christ's image from one degree of glory to the next. We wouldn't want that degree of Christ-likeness to stop at a certain percentage, would we? We don't, we don't want our Christ-likeness to top off at 10%. So I think the apostles are intentional, very intentional, in encouraging unlimited generosity. So even though the New Testament never gives us an exact number, and I think that's intentional, there are plenty of opportunities for the apostles to give us an exact number. The Lord doesn't do it. But what he does do is tell us that this new covenant giving is proportional, continual, sacrificial, and cheerful. So in 1 Corinthians 16, we see the, the proportional and continual. This is what we see, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So there's a sense that Paul is instructing all churches to be doing this. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. I love that. Something. And store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So in other words, continually, first day of every week, give in proportion of what you have. 
That's what he, that's what he means by the, uh, as you may prosper. If the New Testament anywhere was going to say how much to give, don't you think this would be a great verse to do it? If the New Testament anywhere was going to say give 10%, this would probably be the spot. But the Lord doesn't tell us that. Paul just says regularly put something aside. Everyone is to put something aside as he may prosper. In other words, in proportion to your wealth. So new covenant generosity is proportional. It is continual there in 1 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul describes the church in Damascus and their willingness to help needy Christians who are in Jerusalem. There's apparently a famine or some sort of trouble in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem Christians are starving. So all the Christians everywhere else are helping them out. How much does Paul say the church in Damascus gave? What percentage of their incomes did they give? The Bible does not say. The percentage is not what is in focus. It's like it wasn't in focus with Barnabas. Here, the heart is what is in focus. They gave abundantly even in their poverty, which is to say they gave sacrificially. But though it was a sacrifice for them, the focus is on their hearts, their heart motivation. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 and 8. I'll put it on the screen for you. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, which is to say this is not under manipulation. This is not something that, the, that, that Paul is making them do. This is not a law that they are beholden to. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So notice what is motivating the giving here. It is the exact same thing. That motivates our love towards other Christians. It's the same thing that motivates our hospitality, our open homes towards other Christians. It's the same thing that motivates our prayers to the Lord. It's the same thing that motivates our thankfulness, our hope, our zeal, our desire to honor Christ with our lives. The motivator here is the grace that God has shown us. Look at what he says. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you may abound in every good work, including the good works of cheerfulness through generosity towards others. You see, that's, that's the New Testament picture of giving. And it's a short half of a sermon because it's, it's just living this transformed life. By the grace of God working in you, brother and sister, you will grow in love towards Christ and in allegiance to Christ. By by the grace of God working in you, you will begin to more and more and more and more repudiate the world, the king of Sodom, son of evil, and show your allegiance to Christ. By the grace of God working in you, you will grow in brotherly affection. You will grow in hope. You will grow in patience. You will grow in generosity. So as we think about 
that timeline from Abram to here to now, we need to understand how radical Christ's sacrifice was that cross that stands in the middle of that timeline. He changed everything. God through Abram, not to say that wasn't important, God through Abram set the wheels in motion to create a nation through whom the Christ would come. But God through the Christ who came saved the nations and created an entirely new way to be human. And that's what you and I are living in now in Christ by the Spirit. So we should expect that in this new way to be human, there would be some changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The Lord is the same. But because of what Christ has accomplished and because we have the Spirit in us, how we show our loyalty to God as King is much greater than what Abram or Moses could have done or could have known. What a privilege it is, what an honor it is for Christ to call us, come and die and be raised with me. Receive my spirit and live for me. That's who we are. That's what we have. So let's revel in that and thank the Lord.